We're glad you're here this morning. Um, we're just 10 days out from the beginning of Lent. Maybe that's not on your calendar, but uh, it's sure on mine. Uh, it's our annual trek to the cross, you know, those 40 days before mm, Holy Week. Actually, good, uh, good Thursday, Maundy Thursday. So we were just singing about Jesus being the author of salvation. Yeah, we sing it with gusto. What do we mean by it? Did he author your salvation? And what does that mean, that he's mighty to save? Now, we want to review our understanding of salvation uh, this morning as we move into this time of Lent, getting ready for it. Mm. How do you understand it? How do you think our society today understands that word? Um, And in fact, how do you relate to it personally? Do you have a genuine need for salvation? Uh, From what and for what? I hope that I will provoke you to think some about these questions this morning. Uh, You know, teaching systematic theology for over 30 years, it has sort of warped my brain in a certain way, and, you know, sometimes I realize it just bombard you with lots of things. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will sort it out in your brain and get something of his message through. Um, But this is where we're headed. At least you've got the general goal in mind as I throw out all these ideas at you this morning. And I want to go back to that psalm that we started with uh, today. Uh, In fact, I want to ask you to read those verses with me, Psalm 35. It's it's an imprecatory psalm. You know what that is? David is really judging his enemies, calling down God's judgment on them. And uh, it's, it's strong. It's strong language. We're only dealing with the first three verses. That'll make it a little easier to digest. Um... But let's just read the first two, and then we'll, we'll put the third one up there. Let's read it together. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor. Arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Okay, so... David is in the thick of a battle, and it's a raging battle, an enemy who is fierce, and he speaks vividly about his weapons and their usefulness. But his primary focus here is on the one who fights at his side that he's calling on. And this next line is really important. Let's say it together too. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. In other words, he's asking the Lord, just tell me again and again. Keep making me understand that true salvation comes from beyond myself, from beyond what my strength, wisdom, understanding can accomplish. Make me understand this, that the battle is much more than this visible struggle going on here. and that You're the only source of salvation. I think we can capture that here quickly enough, but to really get it in your life, you got to do a lot of living. You got to go through a lot of trials and hardships 
to really learn he's the only source of salvation. Because actually, I think we're all hungry for salvation. I believe that. But most people today don't relate to that term, do they? At least not in spiritual terms. Hunger is more focused on our multiple and hyper-stimulated appetites, wouldn't you say? Um, people think that heaven is whatever satisfies those. And we're especially hungry for our primal needs to be met. You know, the basic ones and then going up the scale. Thinking of Abraham Maslow's scale of needs. But especially in this society where the basics are normally met, we're after recognition, acceptance, fulfillment, security, love, of course, our ambition maybe to achieve something significant in life, to, to be somebody, to project a positive image. And some people may be focused on uh, repeating the thrill of an adrenaline rush, uh, whether it's from gaming or from other diversions or from some exciting challenge. But salvation mm, sounds like a foreign term. Unless maybe you're speaking of some dire circumstance, some crisis, like I lost my job or uh, had an accident mm, or developed a serious illness or, or maybe it's your residence permit <laughs> or a work permit or think of the refugees that are pouring into Spain right now, the crisis they're going through. I'm sure they might think of salvation for them as Somebody coming to their rescue, getting them out of this difficult dish situation. They left one desperate situation and they've just come to another. I'm sure you're aware of all that that's going on. Or maybe it's your marriage that needs saving. Oof, I could tell some stories on that one. They're heartbreaking, but I won't go into that. It's just to give you another example of where people might think of salvation. Mm. But soul salvation? Who thinks in those terms these days? Spiritual salvation? I mean, it sounds like what the church and the gospel offer in Scripture are really just sort of irrelevant to most people, the popular mind. Not naturally appealing to people, not pertinent to their everyday life. So it's sort of off the radar. Are you with me? Okay. Because our society's worldview today assumes materialism, void of transcendence, to be the truest perspective of life. Okay, so those are two key terms right there in yellow. Materialism and transcendence. So we want to sit down on them for a moment and really grapple with their implications. All right? Let's go with transcendence first. Don't know what that word brings to your mind, but it refers to something beyond this spatio-temporal world that surrounds us. The implication is that this physical world is not all there is. There's something beyond our five senses. And the implication in a Christian setting would be that my being doesn't necessarily end with my physical death. 
Yeah, that's essential to the biblical message, isn't it? When I die, there's something more. Okay, I can't see anybody nodding their heads, but I think you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, transcendence is all over the Bible. Uh, God talks about his own transcendence there in Jeremiah 23 when he says, am I only a God nearby and not a God far away? You know, he's not just right here, so we have him under our control. No, no, he fills the universe and beyond, doesn't he? Do not I feel heaven and earth, he says. He's making us aware. He's out of our grasp. Um, beyond the perception of our five senses, which is what we usually use to know and understand things, right? That's the empirical method. If I can't see it or hear it or smell it or taste it or touch it, is it real? What answer would our world give today? Uh, our world, I think, would say it's doubtful. Yeah. But Psalm 19 says it very clearly, doesn't it? The heavens declare something beyond them. The glory of God. They may look glorious to us, but they are declaring, according to God's word, there is something so much more glorious. And the firmament is just proclaiming that this is the work of someone else's hands whom we cannot see. Yeah. Okay. Romans 1.20 goes in the same direction. Paul's argument there where he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities can't be perceived by the empirical method. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made. The things that are made are speaking to us about him. But it goes further than that. John 1, 9. John talks about the internal witness. When he talks about the true light that gives light to everyone that was coming into the world. In other words, that light proceeds from beyond this world and it was coming to meet us in Jesus. That light that lights our way without which we would really be blind. That's why Psalm 14 says it's absolutely a foolish premise to assume that there's nothing beyond the physical universe. It's foolishness. It's a theory that cannot satisfactorily explain the evidence. And all of us in our minds, we are wanting an explanation that covers everything. It makes the most sense. God is who makes the most sense out of this worldly existence, isn't he? I hope you're convinced of that. So, in effect, Scripture already tells us that materialism is not a wise philosophy. Yeah. So, what do we do with materialism? It can be defined as a philosophical view that says nothing exists beyond the physical world. In other words, only matter matters. Nothing else. Well, our society is materialistic, but in many practical ways as well, because material possessions and physical comforts are treated as more important than spiritual values. Do Christians ever treat material things as more important than spiritual things? Ooh. 
we just stepped on our own toes, didn't we? But you see, our society is also more and more committed to materialism as its basic operating system for everything. So where did Western culture get into this dilemma? It's actually as old as humankind. The attempt to live as if the transcendent didn't exist and didn't impact my life. Reduce life to just this physical world. But it was Immanuel Kant, an 18th century philosopher, who especially made this radical separation between faith and reason. Uh, it taught that God language is not intelligible anymore. And therefore, God himself is inherently unknowable. Well, you know, this opened a can of worms, didn't it? Opened the door for everybody just to believe in whatever they choose about him or her or it or them, you know, up to each one. But I think the popularization of this view actually awaited, are you ready for this? The Beatles. Anybody remember the Beatles? Yeah, they were really popular when I was uh, a young person. Um, John Lennon's song, Imagine. Remember that one? Such a lyrical, romantic piece, totally renouncing transcendence. And we're waiting for it to come on. I think it's going to, <laughs> if they can find the right button back there. Just so we can not just have to imagine it, but we can actually hear it. It's coming. You have to believe. <laughs> and take a deep breath. I told you. You recognize that, don't you? And you know what he's going to tell us to imagine? There it is. No heaven. Easy if you try. Besides that, no hell. Only sky. We're all going to be better off if we imagine this world. Just living for today. Carpe diem, right? No countries. Yeah, don't turn it down. That's the end of it? Oh. Okay, well, you have to imagine the rest of it. <laughs> okay, very appropriate, guys. Anyway, you got the lyrics up there. Uh, you imagine mm, nothing to kill or die for. Well, nothing to kill for, okay, sounds pretty good. Nothing worth dying for? Sounds a little dangerous. No religion, remember, that's in there too. No religion. In other words, no transcendence. Do you hear where he's going with this? There are some high ideals. No boundary lines, no divisions. Everybody living in peace. The world living as one. 
the brotherhood of all people. Wow, this really sounds like a noble ideal, doesn't it? But you notice there's also no real capacity and no real plan for achieving all that unity and harmony. Just dreaming. Just dreaming about it. So this was how John Lennon imagined a better world. But his dream, honestly, was just not realistic, was it? Didn't take into account what humanity is really like. Remember that guy? Mark David Chapman. Wow. John Lennon never imagined him. So John Lennon's dream never involved any real salvation from ourselves. Did you know that's also whom you need salvation from? Have you discovered that? I didn't get any hearty amen out there, but I hope you're convinced of it by the end of this message. Okay, so he only imagined materialism and this strangely evolved humanity that could somehow share their material well-being perfectly. Wow, that was really a dream, wasn't it? And not very realistic. Because reality includes a lot more than what meets the eye or than what happens in your dreams and fantasies. Reality involves transcendence. The good and the bad. So, modern materialists understand there's a problem here. That we do need some kind of transcendence. So they're working hard to come up with alternative transcendence. Alternatives to real transcendence. Oh, you just need to transcend yourself. That'll do it. Well, at least they've identified a small piece of the problem, ourselves. Last year, this book came out entitled The Transcendent Brain. Ha-ha. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, actually, this author sets forth non-religious spirituality. Does that sound interesting? That's what people are interested in today, non-religious spirituality. There's something that says, yeah, we really do need spirituality, but we don't want religion, okay? Like John Lennon was preaching. Uh, of course, this non-religious spirituality, according to Lightman, is made possible by the evolution of consciousness, which you know is nothing but electrical and chemical activity going on in your brain, right? That's all there is to it. Mm, so there's really no transcendence here. Yeah? Are you with me? Or this other one, a uh, few years back, 2020, the new science of self-actualization. Here, Scott Kaufman is re-examining Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, emphasizing the top one, which is about self-actualization. And he tries to give this interesting spiritual spin to it, but in fact, his transcendence is also fictitious. There's no real transcendence there. It's just be the best self you can without God. How's that sound? Hmm. Scripture's teaching on salvation wants to fill this awful void in human philosophy and in human life. But we have to be willing to face our true life situation. And realize that there is no real experience of 
transcendence apart from God's revelation in his word. He is the transcendent one and he is the only one who can enable us to experience transcendence. Otherwise, we're just prisoners of our five senses. We are just empiricists and that's as far as we can go with it. Now, there are huge implications here regarding salvation, which even we Christians tend to reduce to minimal terms many times. Lowest common denominator. Mundane matters that have little to do with transcendence. I mean, think of your prayer life. Yeah, Sachi last week tried to provoke us to think about how we pray. Well, let's do that just a minute longer. In your prayers, do you mainly focus on trying to get God to help you manage your material world? Is that basically what prayer is about? Fix your emotions, deal with too much stress, make better decisions, improve your relationships, your mood, your career. I don't mean that God doesn't care about those details in your life. Of course he does. But what I'm questioning is, is that the focus of your prayer life? Shouldn't it be more about aiming at a deeper relationship with Christ instead of simply getting him to make me more comfortable in my little world? Okay, you're not reacting. Maybe you're turning me off. I don't know. But... You know, if this first one is the case, any number of religions, philosophies, or self-help programs could be viable options for you <laughs> Yeah, without even having to deal with faith issues related to Scripture. So what is it that Christianity offers uniquely? What real problem does Christian faith seek to solve? We don't like... To talk about our spiritual neediness. We don't really like to acknowledge it. We'd rather just give the appearance of having it all together. Even if just for for our own sakes. I mean, if I can deceive myself into believing that, yeah, I really do have it all together. At least as well as the next guy or in comparison with that one over there. Yeah. Do we have it all together? If I can deceive myself that way, then I don't have to deal with the really hard questions of life and the hard questions related to my sin nature and why I am the way I am. See, Christianity deals with the hard issues of life. But not if you're content with a superficial reading of Scripture. If you just want the surface of Scripture, you're not going to get very far in dealing with the, the, the gutsy issues that life will throw at you sooner or later. You see, we're complex creatures, aren't we? Are you a complex creature? Okay, there I got some agreement. Yeah, we are. Found something you'll agree with. We are complex creatures, but you see, we were intended to reflect the image of God in this world. Everywhere, and to everyone, weren't we? How, 
how well are we doing at that? Oh, it's become more complicated since sin came into human existence, hasn't it? We're complex creatures. Mm-hmm. So how does Christian faith help us to deal with these really hard issues and experience that full dose of transcendence that God always intended for us? Please hear me on this because I think it might be the heart of the message. Transcendence is about knowing Him, knowing the Lord of the universe in the nooks and crannies of our brokenness. Right there. Knowing Him in His Lordship, in His saving grace, in all those broken, raw edges of our lives. Because you see, it's, it's really the whole Bible that gives us this view, this view of the full range of damage that sin has caused to us personally and to the human race, and the full range of what God offers as the solution. You remember when Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There it is. According to the Scriptures. He's not referring to some proof text in the Old Testament. He's talking about the whole Hebrew Bible, the entire history of the Hebrew people. So salvation from the Old Testament perspective takes in the whole gamut of human needs. Think about it. Talks about humanity having this huge sin problem. We're, we're truly guilty, broken, lost, incapable of correcting our course, resolving our dilemma. We abandoned our true home, so we're actually wandering in exile far from our true destiny. We've become enslaved to powers that we can't understand or even perceive. We have this plethora of enemies, all of which are too strong for us to overcome. That's the Old Testament analysis of where we are. So that tells us what we need in terms of salvation, doesn't it? Yeah. We need the removal of our sin problem. We need freedom from slavery. He's the one who breaks our bondage. We need to return from exile. He's the one who gets us back on the right path. We need defeat and destruction of all those enemies. And all of this happens through the new covenant that the Old Testament is already prophesying. That's what was going to bring real fulfillment to all God's promises. And it would all be accomplished in the incarnation of the Son of David through the life, death, and resurrection of the heir, the king, the true Lord. Well, in fact, this biblical understanding of salvation, this understanding of biblical salvation is increasingly at risk of being eliminated as a serious option today thanks to religious pluralism. It's devouring the playing field. Thanks to postmodern attitudes, everything's relative, you know. There's no, no absolutes. Nobody believes in absolutes anymore. Absolutely not. 
<laughs> well, in our culture, we are being proselytized 24-7 by television, movies, internet, social media, secular friends to believe that any religion is as good as another. Just have to be sincere. And of course, as John Lennon would say, no religion is even the best of all. You know, part of that message, very subtle, part of that message is that there are no objective moral values. No objective moral truth anymore. Morality only exists in our minds, in our social norms. In other words, it's just a matter of what we've all agreed to. That's morality. That's what defines what's moral and what's not. It's known as social contract theory. And it's totally based on materialism as the only thing that really exists. Well, we do get where this is going, don't we? It means all human acts are amoral. And of course, that means there's no longer any such thing as immoral. Do we get it? Do we understand the implications of this? And supposedly, all societies do the same thing, just getting together and agreeing on what's good for us as a group. And most Western governments these days are aggressively pushing this agenda. If you live in Spain, I'm sure you're aware of it. But really, just anywhere else in the West. And of course, by promoting and getting people to accept this view, what they've just eliminated is the category of evil. Uh-huh. We get to define good and evil, and evil, per se, as a reality, no longer exists. Anything can be justified. Transgender theory, the, the most corrupt pleasures you never even imagined, not just war as a viable means to an end, but murder, whether it's babies or the elderly or the terminally, terminally ill, or even eliminating Down syndrome as a reality on the earth. Because, of course, people with Down syndrome, they are inferior, aren't they? Oh, this is the modern agenda. Are we ready for it? Reminds me of an incident with my grandchildren recently. As they were watching something on TV that seemed useless and pointless. <laughs> and so we fuddy-duddy grandparents made our usual plea for a program with some redeeming value. You know, have you ever used that term? <laughs> our granddaughter's comment was, Grandpa, why does everything have to have redeeming value? Can't we just relax and watch something entertaining? Wow, I was, I was breathless <laughs> and speechless for a moment. I had to think hard because I didn't want to seem like a legalist. I didn't want to seem like a party pooper. But it really got me thinking about transcendence and redemption and how well we are communicating our need for those to the next generation. Eventually, I thought of this psalm. I didn't think of it in the moment to be able to answer my granddaughter. But anyway, 
This psalm came to mind, Psalm 4, where God asks, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? You get the impression God is uh, getting a little bit impatient. Even though his impatience, his patience is so eternal. That is actually our default mode to love delusions and fantasies and seek false gods, be led astray by our five senses into false worship. Because we actually imagine God as this kind of celestial accountant measuring all our actions according to his divine rules. And in order for him to be able to forgive us, somebody has to pay. Is that how forgiveness works in your understanding? Jesus didn't come to pay God off, but to represent him, to reflect his character his compassion, his truth and grace into this world. And he was doing that all the way to the cross as he hung there on that cross. That's what he was doing, reflecting who his father really is faithfully. But sometimes we can fall into such petty, unbiblical views of God that really do not show the vision of Jesus Christ who was manifesting to us the true glory of God. And I think it's why the Bible describes us as so utterly lost, enslaved, exiled, guilty, broken victims, surrounded by enemies too strong for us. And everything in this world is desperate for redemption. Haven't you observed that? Don't you feel it in your bones? That word in English means a re-evaluation, redeem, re-evaluate. The Hebrew words point to rescue, ransom from slavery is the essence of that meaning of redemption. That is so what we, we need because we're in bondage to the elements of this world and to our old nature, incapable of sowing to the spirit until we experience that rescue through which Jesus gives us a new birth into new humanity. So wherever there is no recognition of Christ's lordship, there is slavery, there is vanity, there's absence of life, there's anguish, there's wrong choices, there's the need for redemption. You see, when the command of Exodus 20, I think it's the first one of the ten, says, no other gods before me that's not legalism God is not being legalistic he's just trying to protect us from ourselves and our own tendencies to wander because when we follow other gods none of whom are the source of life we are pursuing death it's that simple it's almost mathematic So 1 John 5, 9 through 12 tells us when you put your trust in Jesus as Son of God, Lord and Savior, you have God's own witness in your heart 
And that witness says that God has given us eternal life. Do you hear the transcendence in that term? Ah, that's how I transcend all the mess in this world, in my life. It's all about him. And the scripture goes on to say, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Isn't it simple? So much simpler than all these complications I've given you this morning. God's message, God's message is so simple and straightforward. Hang on to that. Because that's the transcendence that you have when Christ Jesus comes to reign in you. It's liberation from bondage. The enemies are defeated. Remember, you can't break free on your own. He's the liberator. It's correction of our false way of thinking and feeling and worshiping and relating and acting. Your computer may have autocorrect, but you don't. You need Jesus for that. And it's cleansing. It's cleansing from all the guilt, from all the corruption. Did you know egotism corrupts us? Idolatry. It just corrupts us inside, all over. The corruption of moral failures. The corruption of that angulo muerto. That blind spot. That blind side that we all have. It's a way of the enemy corrupting us. And Jesus cleanses us of all of that. It's, it's healing from all the inner damage. It's due to our false criteria and our blindness and our relational wounds and our soul infirmities. You can't heal yourself it's in the sun that you will find that healing. And it's, it's return from exile. It's restored relationships. Restored community. It's transformation into the image of Christ. And it's the promise of eternal life with him. And all of this thanks to the reign of Jesus on that cross and over death. And the reign in us. As we let go of the reins and we call on him, confess his name, and we say to him, Oh Lord, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Will you say it this morning? Will you tell God, Oh, I need you to tell me that you are my only salvation.